Well, good morning, everyone. As some of you seem to know, but some of you might not know, my name is David. I'm the liturgist here at the church, but this morning it's my pleasure to be delivering the message. And we'll be focusing today on two stories, uh, one of which you know most likely very well, one you've probably heard many times. Uh, Pastor Peter alluded to it. Uh, it's the story of the Good Samaritan, a story that Jesus tells. And we'll also be focusing on a story that you don't know. Uh, this is a story about something that happened to me, so that's why you don't know it. Uh, I haven't told you yet. Uh, but it's, it's something that happened recently to me that seemed to come to mind when I started preparing uh, for talking uh, about this parable. So let's start out with the parable. We're uh, going to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We'll have it up on the screen, or you can look uh, and read along uh, in your Bible. Now, at this point in Jesus's ministry, his ministry has uh, started already. He's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been performing miracles, and as uh, we know, often throughout this period, he uh, will be questioned by the religious leaders uh, of the time within the Jewish community. They want to see what's this guy all about, uh, what does he actually know, and that's what starts off this moment we read in Luke 10, 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, this is the NIV translation. Many translations just say a lawyer came to uh, question Jesus. So sometimes for us, that's easier to realize this is somebody who cares a lot about knowing the ins and outs of the rules, how things should specifically work. So we have this lawyer who stood up to test Jesus, which always works out well. Uh, he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing he's a lawyer, says, well, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus uh, always masterfully responds, instead of a straightforward answer, uh, gives him a story. And this is the story. In reply, Jesus said, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next, next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Now, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, 
the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. There's a lot going on in this story. That's one of the reasons why it's such a famous story. Uh, but I'd like to actually start by going back to one of the initial questions, that actually the question that uh, elicits this parable from Jesus, which is this question, who is my neighbor? Now, of course, the lawyer's asking it, trying to attempt to, it says, justify himself and set up limits and categories of who this law that he knows is true and that Jesus agrees is true to love your neighbor. He wants to know, who do I need to apply that to? He's already trying to set up a system of how this will work. When we say love your neighbor, we generally tend to mean the people that we meet and who are around us. But I want to take it at this point even to its most literal, who is your neighbor? Do you know who your neighbors are? If you're like me and you live in an apartment, you might not know who your neighbors are. I've lived in apartment buildings for several decades now, and I might not know the name of the person that lives next to me. We, our entire lives might be separated by just about, you know, two feet of wall, and I don't know who that person is. I don't even know their name. Uh, you know, it makes sense. Sometimes when you live in a house, we rented a house once, we had a front yard, all of a sudden we saw our neighbors in the front yard, but in an apartment, they slip in and out, and you don't always say hello to each other. But I'm here this morning to tell you that if Jesus asked me, who is your neighbor, I know my neighbor's name, my next door neighbor. Maybe not the one on that side. That guy, I don't know. He's, he, he's, he's, he's barely home. But this guy I know is Victor. Victor is the name of my next door neighbor. Uh, and I'm going to tell you a little story about why I know so much about Victor. Uh, often our neighbors slip in and out. Uh, we've been blessed many years to have neighbors that seem to never be home. Uh, but uh, we met this family recently because as my wife was coming home, uh, she found this woman outside our next door apartment uh, in quite a, a frantic uh, scene because the spigot, they were just checking out uh, the apartment to move in for the first time and the spigot on their upstairs bathroom, their bathtub had broken and water was flooding all the way from the upstairs down to the downstairs. So she doesn't know what to do. She's brand new to the apartment complex. Uh, and they had just moved their whole family from the Mexico City area. So there's a language barrier as well. And so Sandy found her in this uh, panic and was able to help. They were able to contact the right people, get, uh, get the water turned off. And at that point, contact had been made. And now the two families knew who each other were. We met the husband, that's Victor, uh, and uh, we now were aware of each other and knew each other's name, and I was very proud that I could remember his name. Uh, that's not always easy. Normally, that would stop there. We would be able to now say, hello, Victor, whenever I saw him, and I'd feel, you know, pride at that every time I could do it. Uh, but the story continues because... Uh, a while after that, after the water damage had been uh, cleaned up, uh, we hear a knock on our door, an unexpected knock. Now, by the way, this day and age, an unexpected knock on your front door is 
nearly apocalyptic. I mean, I'm never, I'm never expect, long gone are the days of the drop-in. Uh, so somebody knocked on our door, and in our house, it's a major event, because if anybody knocks on that door, our dog will immediately launch full speed and fling herself against that door, barking in some sort of self-sacrificial attempt at defending the house, but she'll just keep on barking at that door. That will alarm the cat, who will do a couple rounds around the, the uh, living room, then sprint up the stairs, and then our son Hezzy, noticing that now that chaos is the reigning mood of the house, will join in, do a couple, uh, <laughs> couple laps around yelling at the top of his voice. All of that is what somebody will find if they knock on our door. The only way to calm the dog down is to pick the dog up, which is a 40-pound pit bull, and uh, I have to hold her when I open the door uh, and, and then see whoever's there and ask why they have done this to us. Uh, <laughs> that day, it was Victor. And Victor said, he said, hello, David. And I go, hello, Victor. We're on a first-name basis. We know each other. Uh, and uh, he says, I need to get my driver's license. And I said, OK. Uh, he said, I have my driver's license from Mexico, but I need to get my California driver's license. And they say that uh, when I go to do the driving test, I need to have a licensed California driver with me. And he says, will you go? It's just this Monday in a couple days. Will you go to the DMV with me? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm preaching. The good Christian I am tried to think of the nicest, most Christian way to say no. Uh, but I took too long, and Sandy came behind me, and she says, of course we will. Uh, <laughs> she says, if, he, if David can't go, me and my son Hezzy will go. And uh, he says, that's great. And then I realize I'm on the hook, because they're not going to go. Uh, <laughs> that, that's going to be me. Uh, so... Uh, I'm do I looked at my schedule, lo and behold, thank you, Lord, it was a half day at work, which meant I could go to the DMV that day. Uh, so a couple days later, I show up at Victor's apartment, and I say, okay, Victor, let's do this. And we, uh, we drive down to the San Pedro DMV uh, in the middle of the afternoon on a Monday. Uh, <laughs> I like that I don't even have to give details for some of this. You know, the San Pedro DMV is very popular. There's about 1,000 people trying to get in. They have a parking lot for 10 cars. Uh, and uh, I, I, we took Victor's car, but I say, go take care of your, uh, uh, get started on your stuff, and I'll try to find a parking spot. And that's, that in itself is a sermon of a glad gladiatorial event of trying to find a parking spot in the, in the DMV parking lot. We were, that's, it's a test of loving one's neighbors when you're all contesting for that open, miraculous space. I finally found one, and my Southern California heart bursted with pride at having found a parking spot. And so I step out and I go, Victor, I found one. He's like, okay, great, grab the car. We gotta put it in line for the driver's license test. <laughs> and I became depressed. Uh, but I, but I got the car, and then we put it in the line. Uh, we're, the line of cars, about, I don't know, five cars deep for the driver's license test. And we waited. And we waited. And Victor turned off the car, and we sat there in the hot sun. Uh, and we 
put to test how long can small talk last between two people who don't know each other. Uh, it, was, it was good. I learned a lot about where he came from uh, in Mexico, and we, we, we got to know each other a bit. After the first hour, though, when the car hadn't moved, and I am not exaggerating, uh, it started to feel like maybe uh, I had made a lot of wrong decisions in my life. Uh, I hadn't brought water. It was hot. Uh, we were just starting to feel it, and that line had not moved. Uh, and it was about that time that I look over, and this is where I have to tell you the geography of the uh, DMV parking lot. You pull over on this side to get in line for the driver's test, and right next to you is a chain-link fence. And on the other side of the chain-link fence is a 7-Eleven. And at that moment, I looked over, and uh, there was a police car in the 7-Eleven parking lot. And I went, oh, that police car is in the middle of that parking lot. Uh, that's weird. And then, of course, I'm like, oh, he just pulled somebody over. And then I see, lo and behold, a white pickup truck that had just pulled over in front of the 7-Eleven, and the police car was behind it. And then we hear on the speaker from the police car, sir, put your hands out of the vehicle where we can see them. And then I look over at the man. I'm not very far away. We're about 20 yards away. So I go, what's he doing? And he's not putting his hands out the window. Uh, and then we hear again, sir, put your hands out of the window where we can see them. And I can see the driver. He's got a, a baseball hat on and sunglasses. And he's like this. And he's not moving. Uh, and I, I go, uh-oh, what's going on here? Sir, you need to exit the vehicle. And he's not moving. Uh, and this continues for about half an hour of a stalemate. More police cars come. Uh, and the people in the DMV are starting to take notice and are starting to crowd around that chain link fence. And they're yelling things at everybody involved. They're yelling at the guy in the truck. They're saying, you need to get out of the car. They're telling you to get out of the car. They're yelling at the police, like, don't hurt him. Uh, we don't know what he's going to do, but don't hurt him. And everybody's in a very high state of conflict. And I'm sitting there for about an hour and a half in this uh, hot car. Uh, and I feel like I am part of the conflict conflict somehow. And Victor asks, he says, why don't they just go get him? Are they, what are they worried about? Are they worried that maybe he has a gun or something? And I said, well, he, he could. They want to be careful. They don't want anybody to get hurt. And he goes, is it easy in America for people to get guns? <laughs> and I found myself now in that hot car with the police standoff. By the way, there's about three police cars in the uh, 7-Eleven parking lot now, explaining uh, American society to Victor. Uh, and the situation is just ramping up. And we are not moving in this car, by the way. Uh, so this was all, you know, <laughs> preordained. Uh, but we're watching this happen. Uh, people are yelling at the man in the truck. People are yelling at uh, the police. We see, I see right there a policeman with a shotgun like this, ready to go charge if he has to. And we realize this is a dangerous situation. And one of the policemen finally gets on that speaker and he says, and he's learned the person's name. His name was Vincent, because they must have looked up his uh, license plates. And they go, Vincent, please get out of the car. 
We don't want to hurt you. And at that moment, I realized with the people along the fence yelling at the person in the car, this person in the car having some sort of breakdown, having done something, the police on that edge where they want it to end peacefully, but they might have to use force and they don't want to, that everybody is stuck in this conflict they don't want to be in, a dangerous conflict. And it made me realize that we live in a fallen world, a world in conflict, where all of us, even in our everyday lives, come into conflict with each other. It's a world of guns and police, DMVs and hot cars, a world where the things that are happening are not happening the way they're supposed to the way they were created to. And we find ourselves in it, just like that officer who said, we don't want to hurt you. None of us want to be in conflict with each other, yet the system of this world we live in seems to continually put us in conflict with each other. And the reason I tell this story besides the fact that it's an interesting answer to the question, who is my neighbor, uh, is that Jesus, when he tells the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, is purposefully telling that story to a fallen world, a world that's in conflict, a world that's dangerous, just like the danger that was starting to feel, to become tangible in that DMV scene, he's speaking into a dangerous world. You see, Jesus chooses these narrative details on purpose. This story of a man being robbed on this specific road from Jericho to Jerusalem is not some hypothetical situation that Jesus created. That happened all the time on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. In fact, uh, the theologian Norville Geldenheis in his commentary on Luke said, possibly this is not an ordinary parable, but an account of an actual occurrence. The rocky, tortuous road from Jerusalem to Jericho has through all the centuries been notorious as a place where robbers all too often attack travelers. So you can believe that the people hearing this story that Jesus is telling aren't thinking about some once upon a time fairy tale, but they know the exact kind of circumstance that Jesus is talking about, and it's one that they are afraid of too. Jesus knows he's talking into a world that's dangerous. He knows he's talking into a world that's divided. We're deep. Divisions exist between people. As Pastor Peter alluded to in the call to worship, the fact that Jesus picks a Samaritan, a group of people that in general were hated by the Jews, to be the hero of this story that he's telling a Jewish expert shows that Jesus is there to dismantle those divisions of that fallen world 
that are wrong and false. And of course, we can recognize, just as I recognized in that moment with Victor in the car, that we're in a fallen world, that this world that Jesus is talking to doesn't sound that much different than ours. This divided, dangerous world. I don't think I have to go into great detail to explain to you the division in our world. That we live in a divided society. Some people even say that one of the defining features of American society today is the depth and ferocity of the divisions between people. How often we're told to look upon the people in our society that disagree with us as enemies rather than neighbors. Jesus spoke into a divided world. He spoke into a dangerous world. I don't think I have to explain to you that this world is dangerous. One reason we were all so nervous in that parking lot when that shotgun was visible and conflict was in the air was we weren't even two weeks removed from the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. And we were still trying to process that. And even as I talk to you now, we're not even a week removed from the shooting on the 4th of July in Chicago. When Jesus speaks into a world where danger seems realistic, he's speaking into our world. A world where against this danger we often feel powerless, helpless. So we ask this question, Jesus, you spoke into a fallen world then, speak into our world now. How should we act? How do we love our neighbors in a fallen world? And that's the message of this parable. The first step, of course, is a step of the heart which is to dismantle these divisions and that we should consider everyone our neighbor. That's, of course, the answer to the question. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this parable, says, the lawyer wants to know who counts as neighbor. For him, God is the God of Israel, and neighbors are Jewish neighbors. For Jesus... Israel's God is the God of grace for the whole world. And a neighbor is anybody in need. You see, our divided world is full of voices that is telling us the opposite of this. They're telling us who our real neighbors are. They're telling us what camp we should be in and what camp we should be against. These are the voices we're surrounded by. But when we read this story, let us hear only Jesus' voice. A voice that validates that a true neighbor is one who has mercy on those in need, despite who they are or what categories or divisions we've placed them in. 
Who is the true neighbor? The one who has mercy. And you see, the definition of mercy is showing someone compassion or forgiveness when it's within our power to punish them or do them harm. And you see, that's the choice between enemy and neighbor. And Jesus' decision on that question couldn't be more clear. He wants us to be ready at all times to practice mercy. To be ready, just like that Samaritan, who when he saw the man on the side of the road, didn't stop to think about whether or not that was the type of person he should help, about whether or not that man deserved to be there. He doesn't rationalize the human suffering he sees. Instead, his immediate reaction is one of pity and mercy. And Jesus wants that from us, to approach all our neighbors who are suffering with mercy. And once that becomes the prime directive of our heart, it prevents us from the temptations of rationalizing or normalizing human suffering. Because we can see something like that's going on with the priest and the Levite in this story. When they see that man, there's some process that either convinces them, well, if I think about it this way, this isn't my problem. Or, you know, this is just part of the world. People on this road, you'll find them on the side. What am I going to do about it? Jesus steers us away from that reaction. But as we come to a close, I want to recognize that to a certain degree, that's easier said than done. It's hard to respond with mercy to a dangerous and divided world, especially with competing reactions like anger, helplessness, and despair. So what then do we do to be like Jesus wants us to be? Well, I think the first step is to remember that we have a God who is a God of love, who loves us individually. And when we recognize that love that God has for us, we are given the ability to love each other despite the fallen nature of this world. And when we join into a relationship with Jesus, he imparts to us a supernatural love, one that is greater than the world, a supernatural love that allows us to share his heart of mercy. When Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room, in the 15th chapter of John, he explains to him how the, the flow of love works. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Make the foundation of your life the love that I have received from my Father. And when we are grounded in the love that God has for us, when we understand in our heart 
that God is a merciful God, then we're able to play that role. As people that want to follow Jesus and honor these words, his love empowers us to go out into a fallen world as ambassadors and facilitators of the mercy of an almighty, loving God. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just pray for your Holy Spirit to be on us now. That in the midst of this world, with its many joys, its many triumphs, its pleasures, but with its heartache and the dangers that often feel to be looming around us, we pray for the reality of the sovereignty of your love over all creation to be made real in our hearts. Let the motivations of our actions be grounded in the understanding and the experience of you as a loving God. We pray for that work of the Holy Spirit to be done in our hearts so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.